It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 5th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Details of what happened in the Rossfield Estate in Talla on Saturday night into the early hours of Sunday morning that resulted in the murder of eight-year-old twins Christy and Chelsea Cawley and their 18-year-old sister Lisa Cash are emerging. Uh, the details of these killings really are horrific uh, and uh, may not make for listening for younger ears uh, this morning, but uh, we're going to hear a little bit about what happened and what led to these awful, awful deaths this morning. Stephen Breen, crime editor of uh, The Irish Sun, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us. What, what can you tell us? Uh, Michael, this is truly one of the most harrowing and distressing stories I've ever covered in, in my 20-odd years uh, as a journalist. Um, I think the whole country uh, woke up yesterday morning to an email from the, the Garda Press Office outlining uh, the t- terrible events that took place in Tala in the early hours of Sunday morning. And obviously the guards had put out their release uh, and had said that you know three Young lives have been lost, and two eight-year-old twins and, and their eighteen-year-old sister. And at the moment, you know, it's a huge guard investigation it is now underway. That they're dealing with a triple murder. And in terms of the sequence of events, it appears that an individual who was known to the family but um, uh, had uh, turned up at the house um, uninvited, and, and during uh, that individual period at the house, um, he, he brutally murdered um, the, the eight-year-old twins and their 18-year-old sister. And some of the, the, the details of that are, are horrific, as you mentioned there, where it involved you know the, the individual using a, a weapon to um, violently attack uh, these, these, uh, the twins and, and their big sister. Um, and he also, during this, this terrifying incident, which was, was witnessed by locals on the street and 
like it be heard. Uh, uh, they, they have indicated to the guards when they arrived that there was a, an individual in the property who may be armed, and there may be other children in the house. So like, the guards were there very promptly. Um, uniformed guards first arrived at the scene within five minutes, and then they were supported by armed detectives and their colleagues in the armed support unit. But uh, the armed support unit officers uh, who are trained to deal with these types of incidents then went into the property. They found the, the body of 18-year-old Lisa Cash lying at the bottom of the stairs, and, but also before they went into the property, the, the, the suspect in this case had thrown the bodies of the two children from an upstairs window onto the ground outside. So uh, the guards went through their house with the objective of, of arresting the, this suspect, and he, he was um, recovered from the attic of the property. The guards were forced to use rubber bullets and uh, stun grenades uh, to try and... Uh, get this individual from the property and he did come down from the property and he was arrested and he's now being questioned at Telecarta station but the, the three children you know, once recovered from the scene were brought to uh, a hospital but sadly they were pronounced dead. Uh, a 14 year old child is also seriously injured as well but his injuries aren't nice for Really horrific. It's beyond belief. It really is. Uh, I don't think there's anybody who could have uh, the words uh, uh, that would bring a- any uh, sort of resolution to understanding this. Uh, it's just impossible to understand. Uh, and after stabbing uh, the two children, uh, he-, he threw them out the window. It, it, like some sort of bad B-movie. Um, uh, Lisa was trying to defend. She was uh, babysitting, wasn't she? She was trying to defend the children, and uh, you're reporting she was possibly killed first. Yes, yeah, so that's it. Obviously, the guards will look at all... Um uh, lines of inquiry in relation to this investigation. Obviously, uh, they obviously hope to speak to three specialist investigators, speak to the 14-year-old uh, who managed to escape from the property. As I said, this individual um, was known to the family, but you know uh, wasn't uh, invited to that family home. And, and there's a feeling there that you know because this individual did turn up at the family home, um, he, he wasn't welcome. And Lisa. Uh, Kasha tried to uh, keep him out. He then forced his way in uh, and mm. used these extreme level of violence on Lisa and her, her siblings. But thankfully, uh, the 14 year old who's in the property managed to escape uh, as well. He, he raised the alarm. Neighbours were on the street within seconds as well. You know, mm. the, the, the social media footage is going around where you can hear people, you know, and screams and, and, and telling this individual not to do it. You know, he, he was pictured you know, with, with the kids. Mm. at the window so it really is horrific and, uh, and you, can, well. you can hear the guards call this man by his name uh, he was known to the yes. guards yeah. oh, he, he was known he was on, mm. on bail uh, when mm. this incident happened and he was facing burglary and theft charges so he, he was known uh, to the guards that there, there was a history of violence associated with him in, mm. in the past so um, obviously it was a, a, a terrible scene that the guards experienced there and obviously very um, traumatic for the local residents and families who, who mm. are really, even my colleagues spoke to them yesterday, they're, they're, they're quite numb and a sense of disbelief that something as often as this has happened in their street. Yeah, unbelievable, it really is. Stephen, thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to uh, a local Fianna Fáil councillor in Tala, Charlie O'Connor, who's on the line. Uh, a very good morning to you, Charlie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, it's beyond words, isn't it? Uh, it's horrific beyond belief what happened in Tala. Oh, there's no question. Uh, I think uh, just to compliment Stephen on the manner in which he's just reported, and I think as those uh, details has emerged uh, over the last little while, uh, you know, the, the, it, it just shows, you know, how shocking this incident was. 
we knew that yesterday. I spent a lot of time in Rossfield yesterday. Uh, and and as those details emerged, uh, you know, it became very clear at how really horrific it was. Uh, and Stephen, I think, has sketched that for you. And it's it's something you just can't get your head around. And, and I made a point yesterday, uh, you know, that, that, that children have gone into school this morning uh, without their friends. So I think that emphasizes, uh, you, you know, the shock of this incident. And I can tell you, the community... Uh, in Rossfield, in the wider Tala area, uh, and indeed further afield, mm. are deeply shocked over this terrible event, and people just can't get their head around it. I was getting calls uh, yesterday from uh, people down the country asking me just to confirm details as I understood it, and, and uh, it's just terrible. It's, 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 um, it's so sad, and uh, you know, we've a lot of work to do, uh, yes. Uh, because the family clearly are entitled to our sympathy and, and, and support, but also the neighbours mm. uh, and, as I said, the community in Rossfield and in, in Tala, they will need help to walk through this. Right. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how the family are going to get through this, let alone uh, move back into the house. Um, the uh, mother, Margaret, and uh, her 14-year-old son have a, an awful lot to contend with. But uh, as you say, the neighbours too, it would be very difficult uh, for people to continue living on that street. And it's the kind of thing that really will haunt younger children. There's no question. Uh, although yesterday, the, the local Brookfield Youth and Community Centre, Michael, opened its doors uh, to allow people in to relax and, and grieve. Uh, and I was struck by the fact that many young people of, of, of that age, of the age of, of, of the children, particularly of the twins, uh, you know, uh, appear to be coping in the sense that they were encouraged to, uh, you know, to make drawings and to, and, and put down words. And, and you know, the, the message was coming from them how much the, the twins certainly were loved and also Lisa. And, and uh, like it, 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 it's, it's, it's just amazing, amazing the way people are trying to cope. Uh, but there will be a lot of grief. Obviously, the funerals, uh, you know, will, will, will have to be properly handled. And, and it's, it's, it's just a shocking experience. And, mm. and I can tell you, I've been out and about early this morning in the community and, 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 and people are shocked and people are wondering if you like, what happens next. Okay, and I, I take it there will have to be a delay to the funerals uh, because of the criminal investigation. Well, I presume that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There'll be a whole, there'll, there'll be a whole episode around all that. Which will drag this out all the further. Uh, I think that's the unfortunate part of that, but it, it's uh, an unfortunate necessity uh, in terms of uh, the criminal investigation. But um, when And I think we should, Michael, can yeah. I just make a point? Uh, because I did speak to a senior guardie yesterday, uh, and the message came across very strongly and has since, uh, you know, that the first responders uh, were faced with, 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 with something they would not want to live through again. Yeah. Uh, and I know it had a huge effect on people, and people were very upset, mm. uh, you know, who had been on the scene, the first yeah. responders, the people mm. that had to deal and uh, the threat to them, undoubtedly, uh, and how they kept, you know, uh, calm in the situation and used non-fatal weapons uh, to uh, arrest this man. Um, and will there be questions in time? Undoubtedly, it's a time for grieving and uh, trying to 
get this uh, around your head somehow, but will there be questions about what happened or could it have been prevented or anything like that? I, I, I understand from all of the reports the guards were there in no time at all. In the blink of an eyelid, it seems they were on the scene after uh, the incident was reported to them. Uh, but will there be questions about relationships and if there should have been intervention somewhere at some stage along the way that could have prevented what happened in Tallaght? I'm quite sure they will, but I think at, at this moment in time we should be a bit sensitive about some of those issues, uh, you know, because they will emerge and there will be a lot of talk. But but like we are where we are at the moment, and and, and I have to say, uh, my sense this morning is 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 the focus in the in the two, in the two local schools uh, where young people have to be looked after and talked through the loss of their peers. Uh, and I heard someone say this morning that there's uh, three empty desks in the local schools in Brookfield and, and uh, people are going to be deeply affected in that regard and, and we have to take account of that. Uh, yes, there will, Michael, be a lot of questions to be asked and answered but maybe that's another... Down the road, yeah. Mm, OK. Uh, I think the nation is stunned, uh, Charlie. Thanks uh, for joining us uh, and give us a, a, a feel of what people are saying and thinking uh, in Tala this morning. That's uh, local Fianna Fáil councillor Charlie O'Connor. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Dáil will uh, resume next uh, week uh, and when it uh, does uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, attention on the budget. Sinn Féin is saying uh, that uh, the focus really should be on the cost of energy and helping people cope uh, with a Sunday independent poll uh, telling us uh, this week uh, that 37% of people are unable to pay uh, their bills. Let's uh, speak uh, to Rurio Murakou, TD for Louth and East Meath. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that poll put things into perspective for a lot of us, uh, 39% in addition to that first statistic saying uh, that they're going to have to cut back. Look, I've been hitting doors, canvassing, and obviously have had people into my office right throughout the summer. And look, the fact is, like you find people, they're in really good form and really sound when you're talking to them. But then they move the conversation to their big fears in relation to what's coming down the line on costs. And even the fact that some of them are showing you bills that here they're saying I don't know I don't know how I can afford this Mm. you obviously have had a huge amount of people who never would have considered or would never have been in a situation before where they're directly applying for additional needs payments and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it and I can't imagine what the chaos is going to be There was a shocking statistic from the ESRI last week uh, and uh, the technical uh, way of defining energy poverty is that if you spend more than 10% of your income on your energy bills, you're in what they call energy poverty. And the SRI said 43% of us are in energy poverty. That's it. And we always had a difficulty in the sense in this state of, you know, being able to literally qualify those percentage of people who fall into that percentage. Because we, you know, there's obviously here poverty has taken. Uh, a change of nature. There's a huge amount of people who are in low, um, low, low pay employment that are paying high rents that may have huge costs in relation to childcare. And if you add in the cost of fuel combined with, or the cost of let's say home heating oil, electricity, 
And and then if they have any level of commute, the increase in relation to diesel mm. or petrol, well then really they are under severe pressure. Yeah. Like I've often thought just in relation to the housing situation, I, I don't understand how the system hasn't fallen apart in the sense of the people that are paying 1,400 euro, 1,600 euro in rent combined with childcare and those other costs. I, I don't realise how they're able to keep the show on the road. Well, they may not be able to. If, uh, I, I think that's where we're heading, Mike. Yeah, you see this is the thing is if people were squeezed to the pin of their collar uh, well they may just be pushed over the edge of a cliff now because come October you're going to see the cost of energy 43% of us are in energy poverty uh, come October uh, you're going to see that increase substantially because bills are going to increase by a third yeah no 100% and, and the other thing that you're getting and you're even getting on doors is you're getting that big promises are being made in relation to this budget that the government are going to introduce um, and we need to make sure that it is a proper cost of living budget that takes into account the pressure that people are under that we're going to be looking at some element of mitigations where they can be done and we we also know that there is and finally we've seen movement at a European level in relation to dealing with the high cost of electricity Look, Sinn Féin are on the record of calling for a decoupling of the electricity price from the high price of gas, obviously considering that, you know, a huge amount of electricity is produced from the likes of renewables that are obviously a lot cheaper. Uh, the government were not only in no rush in relation to this, we're actually against it. Very glad that they've changed their tune, but they've changed their tune on the basis that the European Commission seems to be taking action in this. We'll have meetings later this week in relation to this, but we've already seen draft proposals and that's like the separation out of all the non-gas means of generation. Now, we also know that we could be in this energy crisis for a considerable amount of time, a number of years, um, Minister Raymond Ryan said. So at that case, we really need to get our act together as regards renewables, as regards the planning difficulties that there are Mm. in the state for offshore and and all the rest of it. And we need to make sure that we actually have fit for purpose grant schemes in relation to people using solar, whether it's farmers, whether it's micro generation. Mm. You know, we've had too many complaints of basically too many not fit for purpose schemes in the past. And whatever about before, we really have no room for manoeuvre in relation to to any of this. Mm. Um, And also, look, utility companies also have to realise that they are utility companies. I think I heard it said before, not commodity companies looking to make you know, huge profits at the expense of everyone else. We uh, accept that some of this needs to happen at a governmental and an international level, um, but we also need to ensure we end up in a situation where everybody is being charged on the lowest tariff. Mm. Like We can't have a set of circumstances where shop around is still one of the best options that people have like in fairness I've hit a number of doors where, so, where people actually telling me what I'm doing at the minute is I'm doing a ring around of all the uh, electricity providers and I'm going to see what the best I can get is and like fair play to them and that's that's as an individual that's what should be done but on some level we need to facilitate people and there will be people who will obviously find difficulty in relation to that mm. and we can't have a set we can't have a scenario where we're actually going to punish those people who've remained loyal to companies okay so well, well never have changed you know, despite the best efforts it seems inevitable that we're 
uh, walking into a, a crisis uh, and like uh, a domino effect, one thing is going to have a, an impact on the next thing. Uh, and it appears uh, that uh, there's the prospect for recession and job losses and some very dark days ahead. Would you say that the good times are over? What I'm saying is that we are facing into if the right actions aren't taken, what could be, I'll state it, absolute carnage. I've had uh, business interests, um, representatives of small business organisations throughout the town who have said to me, quite honestly, that they are not quite sure how some of these companies that were able to survive the pandemic and, and difficult times over the last year, 10, 15 years, but do not know how they can live like on the basis that they're making small margins, but they were making small margins when, let's say, their electricity or their fuel prices were at a quarter of the price of what they're at now without any certainty in relation to where that's going to go. Okay. Now, we obviously had very specific business supports during covid we do need to look at that again. We know that there still are monies there that have been put aside for COVID mm. and there will need to be other changes that are made. Because here's the other thing. If we are talking about a huge amount of small, medium enterprises, small businesses mm. that could go to the wall, that's a huge amount of jobs. Yeah, uh, and that, that seems to be the imagine, prospect, yeah. Or, or, or reduce trading uh, if uh, they don't close down. They might close down two or three days a week or close early uh, at night, as uh, I think some restaurants and pubs uh, have been suggesting. Just while you're with us, uh, a totally separate issue if I can just ask you uh, before we finish up about uh, the next British Prime Minister, Liz Truss is uh, set to take that role today there's going to be a lot of questions about the legislation relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol or if she'll uh, trigger Article 16 Uh, but then there's uh, this other uh, piece of legislation the Legacy Bill and uh, there's a protest due to take place uh, about that next week Weekend. Yeah, no, next weekend in, in Belfast, it's actually it's Sunday, September the 11th, there's three meeting points across Belfast and it's looking just to drive that message home in relation to that families that have lost out over the period of the conflict in relation to truth and justice uh, aren't willing uh, to let it go. And these are people who have been campaigning for years and were Unfortunately, in a huge amount of these cases, the British state's fingerprints are all over the killings of their relatives. That is why they see this legislation happening. It's not from a point of view of we deal with legacy and we move on to a better place. It's about the British government not taking responsibility for being up to its neck in relation to collusion uh, with loyalists and others and the fact that it, it was involved in an incredibly dirty war in Ireland and um, like as I said it's probably what the British have done everywhere they never admit to anything they never say sorry and they try and cover up and when they leave they generally leave badly but we don't know what the case is going to be with Liz Truss other than what she has promised us is not particularly fruitful in relation to politics in relation to the Irish protocol in relation to continuing Mm. a spat with the European Union but we will see I suppose when it looks like she is in position it looks like it is going to be her and if it is 
then I suppose we'll, we'll see when she's actually Prime Minister, mm, as opposed know. to campaigning and looking for the votes from the ERG and others. There may, there may, there may be uh, some people uh, who were wishing Boris away, who'll end up saying, better to the devil you know, <laughs> but time time will tell, as you say. Well, the only thing yeah. with Boris Johnson is you didn't necessarily know what you had on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You couldn't exactly call him consistent, and you couldn't exactly take him at his word. You might end up we missing him, though. In the near future. You might end up missing him, given what's about to come. Uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank uh, I've you. never seen a particularly great British Prime Minister. I, I, I long to see the one that says uh, goodbye um, from a point of view of the removal of the British presence from the six counties. Well, you're not. You're, st- you're, 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 you're definitely not going to get United that with Ireland. Liz Truss. <laughs> All right, yeah. Rory, thank you indeed. Thanks for joining thank us you. on the programme. That's uh, Sinn Fein TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory O'Murakou. Michael Reed on LMFM. Dr. Noreen Russell, the head of Cervical Check, has apologised for what she now describes as inconsiderate and hurtful remarks that she made about women who were making claims against Cervical Check. She made these remarks in a meeting two years ago and during this conversation, Dr. Russell said some lawyers were making huge amounts of money out of court cases representing women who had been screened and later developed cervical cancer. If someone did their job right, she said, you wouldn't have cancer and for the vast majority of women, that is not the situation. That's what women were being told by these lawyers, according to Dr. Russell, who said that the tribunal that was set up by the government to facilitate claims from women was important because the women who had stage one cancer probably knew in their own hearts and souls, that they haven't been wronged. Uh, She said, uh, and the direct quote is, you might kind of know it's probably not worth my while going down to the High Court. I I don't think my story is going to get me a whole pile of money, but I I might get some money from the tribunal. And she said, "I I think that's why a lot of women went to the tribunal. Uh, she was speaking during a video call with uh, the AIM2 founder and leader, Padre Tobin, who's a TD for Mead West and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Padre Tobin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That, 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 those quotes are, are part of a conversation you had with Dr. Russell two years ago. Yeah, this, this stems from a, a speech that I gave in the Dáil in relation to we were looking for um, cervical check to carry out uh, further lookbacks uh, on um, screenings that had happened uh, to make sure that there were no mistakes, no other mistakes uh, outside of the normal margin of error that would normally happen in screening. Uh, I got a letter then uh, from uh, Noreen Russell, the clinical lead uh, of cervical check, indicating that I was giving a false impression uh, to people that uh, what I was saying was was incorrect. Um, and that struck with me because this was this was just after the 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 Taoiseach at the time had given an apology to say that women had been wronged, uh, and it was also after Supreme Court decisions had been made, uh, which um, said that women had been wronged, and it was during a time where women were forced to go to court. Uh, court cases were lasting for years, and some women were fighting those cases right up until the point of death. Uh, which was a horrendous situation. And indeed, that at that time, the, the, the Taoiseach at the time was Leo Bracker, and he said <clears throat> that no other woman would have to go to court, that there would be a tribunal created here to ensure that justice was achieved uh, for, for women. 
So I took a meeting with Miss um, uh, Russell, and in that meeting, you know, you, you described uh, her answers, and I was really, really shocked at these answers because what it showed to me was that we had a Supreme Court system, we had a governmental system, and then we had a public service system from the HSE's perspective, and they were in contradiction with each other. And um, it seems that the HSE had learned nothing uh, in relation to these issues. And, and that has, uh, you know, an outcome for policy because, you know, if, if, a, um, if a, a public body does not understand what has happened, well, they're not going to ensure that the system is fit for purpose into the future. So I raised this then with the, 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 the Taunerstead. I raised it with the Taoiseach. I raised it with the Minister for Health. I actually raised it in the Health Committee. And, you know, everywhere I, I, I went with, you know, this contradiction, and they, the government said, no, it didn't exist. The government just said it wasn't true, that the that service check were in sympathy uh, with uh, the government and had the same policies as the government. Um, and it, it was bizarre because when I asked the Minister that question, he said, the Minister and service check are on the one page, and I asked the minister, did he speak to cervical check? And he said, no. I said, did he meet cervical check? He said, no. I said, well, how do you know they're on the one page? And he says, from reports that I've read in the newspaper that uh, have indicated uh, their policy, which is an incredible situation for and a minister. Did, did you relay your conversation uh, with Dr. Russell to the minister or to the Taoiseach or yeah, in commission? I, I, I did. I, I quoted from the conversation I had uh, with Dr. Russell uh, to the Taoiseach and to the minister. And okay. anyway, nothing happened. That contradiction. And did you do that? Uh, did you do that in public? Because you said you raised it in committee as well. I did. I raised it in the doll. In speeches in the doll, I indicated to uh, the Taoiseach, the Taunist, and the minister that this was uh, the view of uh, Noreen Russell, the clinical lead of uh, Cervical Check, and that you know you can't have different parts of the state mm. in contradiction with each other. And, and as it happens, um, the, the tribunal that was set up by the minister in relation to this was created in such a way mm. as to force women to continue using um, the courts. Okay, was and it clear though that that was what was said directly to you in the way that you raised it by Dr. Russell? Because uh, Eva Moore uh, reported on this in uh, the Sunday Times yesterday, and there's been a huge backlash. We've a public apology, uh, we've statements uh, from the Minister for Health and uh, the CEO of the HSE, and everybody says they're appalled by what was said to you. Yes. Now, when I indicated, when I detailed uh, Dr. Russell's views in the doll, I didn't give exact quotations of the sentences she used, but I made it very, very clear to uh, the minister that this was the view of uh, the, H- the HSC cervical check and Dr. Russell. So I, I didn't mince my words. I didn't quote it in, in, in any ways, sugarcoat it in any ways. I said it was very clear that they did not accept that the um, the women were wronged. They did not accept the the uh, decisions of the courts. They did not accept the, um, the the content of the apology that was given to the women. And an actual fact that uh, they felt that nobody was was wronged. So what, what we're seeing with the with the response, I believe, from the government and the minister now, is again an instinct within government is to protect themselves in a negative public opinion storm more than anything else because they had all of this information um, 
two years ago and did absolutely nothing with it. Mm. Um, and, 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 and as and a result... You, you don't know how this came public, though, over the weekend. Well, I, I didn't record um, that interview, uh, that discussion I had with Noreen Russell, and nor did I know it was recorded. Um, and I've never recorded a conversation that I've had with anybody um, in those types of circumstances uh, ever. Um, so, okay. you know, but, 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 but the issue is now in the public domain, yeah. and uh, I think it's really important now that uh, it is resolved. Yeah. And, and just there's a couple of points I want to make on this because it's important. The tribunal that came out of this is faulty. It's not working. Uh, very few women have used it. Most women are forced to go to court still. We've been raising that over and over again. The women are voting with their feet to avoid the tribunal and go to the courts. And this is two years after the, 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 the then Taoiseach stated that no woman would have to go to court. And that's absolutely wrong. And in, in my view, it's not an accident that that tribunal is, uh, is, is created in the faulty manner that is, that's created because you know, it is being influenced by a public service that doesn't believe they've actually wronged anybody. And second of all, just last week, we had Cervical Check come out with guidance for, for media in relation to this. Again, you know, the, 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 the idea behind that guidance was that there was nothing wrong. And the 221 group have come out very, very strongly and said they cannot rewrite history. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why it could be useful that this debate is had now. And I urge the government to listen to the 221 group. And the final point in this is cancer screening is an extremely important thing to do, even though there's been a controversy here. If a person has uh, an opportunity to be screened for cancer, um, take it. Early diagnosis of cancer means far greater uh, and far better outcomes for people. So uh, just okay. because of this controversy, we shouldn't ignore that point. Absolutely. OK, uh, just a couple of other issues uh, very quickly, if uh, we can. Uh, did the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, meet you when you delivered uh, the 15,000 signatures to him on Friday about our ladies? No, uh, we had contacted the Minister Donnelly's office a number of times in advance of that delivery. And on the day we waited in the, in the department uh, for Minister Donnelly, but he uh, he didn't come down. Uh, now, there was no appointment. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was... Mm-hmm. He was uh, there was uh, no appointment because we hadn't been able to get in contact with him. But we were delighted uh, to deliver 15,164 signatures to his um, to his office. It's an incredibly uh, big number, and it was collected over a short number of weeks. Um, and I want to thank everybody in the Save and Avon Hospital campaign that took time out on Saturdays and, and Sundays that went around houses and went to the shopping centre to collect those figures or those, those signatories. Uh, it was a massive result and it shows you the depth of feeling there is in these uh, for the need to have a proper A&E uh, in Navin. Okay. And just to tell people yeah. they may not be aware of this, the, uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign will have uh, a march from the uh, primary care centre uh, on the Navin Road in Kells to the HSE office on Bechtel Street in Kells uh, on Friday, September the 16th at 1pm. Okay. And uh, we will okay. urge people to go along to that. Okay, and you, you, you've finalised that date now and I'm sure yeah. we'll hear much more about that. Uh, we had hoped to speak uh, to Minister Helen McEntee today. That's, I think, going to happen tomorrow when we'll ask the Minister if uh, she'll walk alongside people in uh, Navin on the 16th, you said, was it? Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's in Kells. It's in Kells. It's actually in the Minister's... Oh, sorry, in Kells. I beg your pardon. It's on the yeah. 16th of yeah. September, yeah. so yeah. Mm-hmm. the Minister should walk with us because it's in her constituency. Okay, the 16th 
Saint in Kells. Uh, we'll uh, note that date, and I'm sure we'll have much talk uh, about that tomorrow with the minister, uh, and indeed in uh, the coming weeks. Uh, let's uh, go to Navan very quickly because. Uh, I think 180 students or, or thereabouts left Navin on Friday night to go to the Vela restaurant in Clondalkin for leaving sir celebrations. And uh, as we heard over the weekend, uh, it appears uh, there was some sort of confrontation outside of the restaurant. Uh, somebody uh, who hadn't attended that uh, event uh, assaulted one of uh, the lads, uh, stabbed him uh, apparently, and it was a very serious incident. Have you uh, been able to establish any more information about what happened in Clondalkin? I, I have only the information that you have given there that I've, I've seen myself in the media. It's, it's a shocking situation, um, a heartbreaking situation uh, to happen, and it comes from a weekend where you know people have had you know just devastation heaped upon them uh, with the the murder of three young people in Tala over the weekend uh, as well. It's it's an incredible situation that we have um, such levels of violence happening, especially where young people should be enjoying themselves um, and celebrating uh, different milestones in their lives. And, you know, our hearts go out to the families who are suffering uh, in, in this tragic situation. OK, Peter Tobin, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Peter Tobin is the leader and founder of the AIM2 party and a TD for Meath West. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's speak uh, to Fergus O'Dowd, who is, of course, a Fine Gael TD for Louth and Meath East, and also the chairperson of uh, the Joint Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement and chair of uh, the Fine Gael Northern Ireland Engagement Group. A very good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. A big day for uh, all of uh, the United Kingdom, a big day for people in Northern Ireland, and uh, indeed, it's a day of significance in terms of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement and watching what the next British Prime Minister does next. I, I take it uh, you're, like everybody else, expecting that Liz Truss will become uh, the next leader of the Tories. Certainly all the media in the UK are saying that. And I was over in Oxford at the weekend meeting some senior British politicians and Irish politicians as well. And that seems to be the opinion there. So I suppose we have to give her a fair wind. I mean, our background is uh, different in many respects to Conservatives at the moment in that she was a Liberal Democrat. She was uh, against Brexit. She was a remainder. Uh, but then she also brought in the legislation of the protocol. And you know, there's a lot of controversy about her, but I think uh, what we want is to reset the relationship, to have the best relationships with the United Kingdom and its government, and in particular, whoever the new Northern Ireland Secretary would be, uh, because it's it's too big an issue, uh, you know, to leave it to chance. And um, you know, I think we really want, and the Irish government, and all the political parties, wanted to work, mm. want this relationship to get better because it's unacceptably poor at the moment, as you know. Okay, uh, you wouldn't be encouraged uh, by what Liz Truss has been saying thus far about Northern Ireland. No, no, not at all. But I suppose when you go into a new office, as as she more than likely will today, you know, there are different pressures. One key pressure is the relationship between the European Union and Britain vis-à-vis the war in the Ukraine and the support that Britain has given to the Ukrainians. And the importance, uh, you know, as we're in a, a huge international energy crisis right now, 
uh, that uh, you know that we try and make sure that there's no division or unnecessary division between Britain and Europe and between Britain and Ireland, and to waste a lot of time fighting over protocol, which is a technical issue, which can be fixed. And the Irish government, uh, the European Commissioner Shevchenko, was there as well, made it very clear mm. uh, that they want to do business, they want a solution. This is not a victory for one side or the other. It's to get the protocol to work, to have no hard border, to protect the single market. And obviously the big benefit to the North is that they will be part of the United Kingdom economy, direct access, and also Europe. Mm, I know, but you know as well as I do that uh, Liz Trust doesn't believe in the protocol uh, and uh, she's going to unravel it or just trigger Article 16. That seems uh, to be the latest thing that's being used. That, 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 that is being used and I think that would be very divisive because uh, this was an international legal binding agreement. The protocol was proposed by the British government and if they, if they, if they signal what if that does actually happen, uh, it will mean that nobody can trust England's word at all on any issue because whatever agreement. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. They can sign, and then this will mean they can tear it up anytime they want. Mm. I think the key point is, and I've spoken to senior unionists uh, over the weekend, both in the DUP and in the UUP, and indeed to people in the Orange Order and so on. And uh, you know, they're, they're very, you know, you know, we we wanted to work. There, there are solutions. There has to be a solution. Yeah, you've okay, spoken to people. You've, now, you've, spo- you've spoken to loyalist politicians over the weekend uh, who, yes, want, have, yes, who, yeah, who want the yeah. protocol to work. Well, yes, yeah. Well, they, they want they want a solution. Okay, uh, right. they, they want yeah. a solution. They want. Yeah, they, they want the they, protocol they, they ripped up, and and they're looking to Liz Truss to rip up the protocol. And if she doesn't do something along those lines, they're saying they won't take their seats in Stormont. Yeah, well, I think the problem is that if. If, if divisions continue, they'll get worse, not better. And the loyalists that I spoke to, they do want they do want a solution. And in fact, there's a poll that says 70% of the British, sorry, of the Northern Ireland people, regardless of the background, wanted to work. So that is the reality. Mm, yeah, but they don't want the protocol. They think it can be scrapped and that they can uh, work it that way somehow. Um, but uh, There are solutions, Michael. There are solutions, technical solutions. This is a technical matter. It shouldn't be... It's not a political matter. If we all agree we have to find solutions. To ah, but but it is political. Trust. It couldn't be more political, could it not? Because it's a question of identity. It's a no, question, it's a question that, of It's a question of unionists wanting if, if British identity. Certain goods, Michael. If say, there's problems with the import yeah. Problems with yeah, you, 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 can, you can solve those. There's technical solutions perhaps to those yeah. things. Uh, yeah. But if the protocol is in place, it dilutes the identity, if not removes the identity that unionists have as British citizens. 
Well, that's what we spoke about. Uh, find a solution to that. And that's, that was part of the conversation that was going on. Mm. And the point is that uh, clearly, clearly Northern Ireland is, is, is under fierce pressure right now. There's no executive meeting. You know, there's, you know mm. there's all sorts of barriers to progress. And it's not good enough after almost 25 years of Good Friday Agreement. You know, it's not, not good enough. Mm. So we have to we have to get a solution. That's what we're working for, and hopefully, hopefully, I'm not saying expectantly. Mm. This trust will do the business, you know. Please, you and Michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that, I don't know. Maybe I'll play that tape back to you a few times over in the months ahead. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure there's many who would share your confidence uh, in, in terms. Well, I, share, I share my own confidence with you, Michael. On this <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, but in terms of Liz Trust bringing about a, a satisfactory resolution to the issues surrounding Northern Ireland, I'm not sure that there's uh, too many people who would share. Uh, the, the, the same confidence that you have in that. Uh, we, we, we had a meeting with Conor Bourne, who is the Minister of State in Northern Ireland, yeah. and he came to meet us and he made it very clear that he wants to reset the relationship between Britain and Ireland in a constructive way to mm. find solutions. Now, he may or may not be in the job tomorrow, uh, but he said he was making Liz Trust absolutely personally aware of what the views we were expressing to him were. Mm. I know, but um, the unionists will be asking... to meet the minister now. He's just actually... Uh, oh, OK. He's just coming in here now. Oh, right, OK. You're, you're, you're in Diffie where the minister is yeah, launching that €4 million that. Uh, euro investment. OK, we leave it there. Uh, thanks then uh, for that, uh, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, who is a chairperson of uh, the Joint Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement. I didn't know Fergus O'Dowd uh, was going to be meeting with uh, Minister Harris. Uh, I knew Minister Harris was going to be in Drogheda launching that investment in Diffie uh, but it's a pity because we didn't get to talk about uh, the legacy legislation which of course would stop court cases uh, being taken against those uh, who uh, were involved in crimes during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It's just one of the many things uh, that people will be watching as Liz Trust takes over as uh, the leader of the Conservative Party uh, and indeed as a result of that position she obviously becomes the next British Prime Minister. I- interesting uh, as well the statistics uh, in relation to how Liz Trust is uh, going to become the next British Prime Minister. I think uh, the vote uh, will be made by 1% of the British population. It's an odd way to become a Prime Minister, but not the first time. Uh, let's um, get to some of the comments uh, that have uh, been coming to us uh, this morning. John Indrada, like everyone else, says he's been listening in horror to the details of the events that unfolded in Tala over the weekend, and he believes firmly that uh, there should be a, a case for bringing back capital punishment. When it comes to something like this, uh, when it comes to something on this scale, for anybody to commit such a crime and to brutally murder the three young children is beyond comprehension. Uh, If uh, somebody is found guilty of this, um, they don't deserve to be treated as human. They should pay the ultimate price for their crimes because it is so horrendous uh, and they should be killed themselves. Bring back capital punishment. Uh, hang the killer, uh, inject the killer. I mean, there's been many ways uh, of uh, capital punishment over the years. Uh, I, I, I don't know, John. I, I must say it's it's something that uh, did pass through my mind, but I think only to the extent that I was expecting that somebody would say that. Uh, I think 
uh, there'll be uh, a lot of people who agree with you, John, but I think there'll be a lot of people like me who believe um, that two wrongs don't make a, a right and that if you kill somebody, albeit uh, on... Uh, the verdict of a, a court um, as part of a, a sentence, uh, well, uh, it still doesn't make it right to kill somebody. Uh, that would be uh, an opinion that I, I think a lot of people like me will share, and I think there's a lot of people like you who would think, no, it is so horrendous uh, that whoever was responsible for those killings doesn't deserve to live uh, themselves. Uh, I, it's a, a, a very interesting conversation, I, I, I'm sure. Um, but uh, as things stand, uh, a prison sentence is all that will be given uh, to whoever is found responsible for the killing of those three children, really. Uh, if anybody else wants to make a comment on that, of course, we'd like to hear from you. We've a lot of calls and comments and texts and so forth coming to us about the cost of energy. Anne has been very offended, I think, uh, by the Minister for the Environment and she says, did, did Eamon Ryan say that if you want help heating your house, leave your oven door open when you're finished cooking? I don't know if he did say that, Anne, did he? Uh, it seems like it's a good piece of advice to me. Uh, I didn't think that the advice was good. Uh, I think I'd always do that anyway. Uh, Margaret is in touch with us today and she says, the Greens can talk about renewable energy all they like, but if we don't have wind or sun, the tor- turbines and the solar panels don't work, so no power to keep the lights on. Unless the Greens have a way of making the wind blow or making the sun shine, we'll have no choice but to rely on old reliables to keep the power on, to keep people alive. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for that, Margaret. If uh, anybody does know a way of making the sun shine, I think (laughs) there's a a number of our listeners who would like uh, them to get on with it. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us saying the government doesn't seem to have a, a clue about what ordinary people are going through. As for making us apply for grants uh, to make our homes more efficient, that's a joke. They still haven't paid the €1,000 they promised to frontline staff who were not HSE. So I wouldn't be holding my breath hoping uh, to get help from them, says our somewhat cynical caller. Thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme and thanks to everybody who has taken the time to make contact with us and make comment on the programme so far today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Let's speak to somebody else uh, who'll be very interested uh, in the next steps that Liz Truss uh, takes uh, apart uh, from anything else. Uh, and Paddy Malone, PRO, with Dundalk Chamber of Commerce on the line with us. Good morning, Paddy. Thanks uh, for your time, as always. Uh, it's uh, been a long couple of years between one thing and another. Six years, I think, really, since uh, Brexit and all the shenanigans that have gone with that and the impact that that has had on local border businesses. COVID, of course, compounding all of that. And now inflation and uh, the cost of living, which you're saying in your uh, pre-budget submission to the government, really should be a priority for the year ahead. Yeah, I think there are certain priorities. The cost of living is probably has taken over everything else since the beginning of the summer when I was looking at the initial drafts of the, of the, of the submission. Because the government and even the European Union were saying that this was going to be a temporary measure and that we didn't need to panic and that things would revert back in, 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 later in the year. Well, I don't think any of us would be that optimistic anymore. So the cost of living one-off issues to address that is critical. And the other point I was making was picking up on what you were saying earlier on is to make sure that we do it in, conduct, in conjunction with the North as much as possible, but to keep inflation and to keep the VAT rates, stay away from VAT, stay away from customs, 
keep the fat rates down to keep inflation under control. Because I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember the 70s and what did happen. It took a long time to get that back. Mm. Are, are you nervous about uh, who is going to become uh, the next British Prime Minister? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm, I'm thrown back again to the 80s when, you know, it took, uh, you know, we, we had out, out, out from Margaret Thatcher mm. dismissing the, all that great work that had been done by the New Ireland Forum. And to be fair to the government at that time, it took the patience and everything else to turn the lady for turning. She did turn. The Hillsborough Agreement was a significant breakthrough in 86, mm. the following year. So that's up to the government to try and logical sense and slowly to the British so that they do understand the situation. I also think that we're blessed with having um, the Cooley man, as I call him, but President Biden in place. Mm. Um, I'm not saying he's a big stick, but he has a lot of influence that we don't, we could only dream of. Okay. So th- those two things, I think, mean, mean that if she's practical, and if she isn't practical, she won't survive six months, but if she's practical, she will listen to what others are telling her. Um, and the soundbite of supporting the DUP will be, will be gone. I mean, I think that's all we can hope for. And uh, the message that we need to get across to the DUP is the, the protocol is about economics. I'm not concerned, I'm not discussing here anything to do with politics or anything to do with, with um, identity or anything else. This is purely an economic situation where Northern Ireland has been given a unique situation of a win-win. Mm. You know, it's, 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 yeah, it's I don't know. Any anyone who remembers the last very strong woman uh, who was in the role of British Prime Minister uh, will be concerned uh, at how equally strong this trust seems to be in her opinions, and her opinions are at odds with what most people on this island think is in the interest of all of the people on this island. But I think that yeah. Thatcher did was turned. So yeah. I think that the only hope, only chance we have is that there's enough logic uh, behind our argument to, to show that the protocol is a win-win for everyone and is not a threat to anyone. Mm. I think that's the message the business community needs to get across. And I think the last one of the last times I spoke to you, I said I was critical of Northern Ireland Chamber and others for not coming out and saying this. But I think over the last couple of months, they have been saying it. And I think the message is now coming through from business that it is workable. That yes, there might be some tweaks on it, but that it is workable. Okay. Tell me about the Living City. Um, you're looking for uh, investment in Dundalk, obviously, but also in Drogheda. Yeah, look, the, the, Drogheda and Dundalk should be seen to be working together. And every time that we would look for something in Dundalk, we would also see it as Drogheda. The M1 corridor, Drogheda, Dundalk, Newry, means that the, that the three of us have to be the counterweight to the two poles of Dublin and Belfast. And that's our job, to support anything that goes on in the Northern Cross or anything else in Florida, and we would expect them to support us. But if for both of our cities, or both of our town centres, if you look at them, mm. the Living City Initiative is important. At the moment, there's only three locations identified. And I'd be politically sarcastic enough to say Limerick was Noonan, uh, Kilkenny was uh, Hogan, uh, or yeah, Phil Hogan, and um, Waterford was Howland. Now, there's something wrong with that. The government have already prioritised the tra- under the 2040 plan a number of areas, including the broader than Dock. And what we're saying is, follow your own plan. You've already said that the areas that the concentration have got to be the cities plus broader than Dock. Well, do what you said you said you're going to do, and I, and and. I, and prioritise those areas. Mm. Uh, and to regenerate 
parts of Dundalk and it's, it's, it's to Yeah, it's to incentivize the, the, the Narrow West Street in particular, uh, Cambrassa Street. I mean, I, the good work, mm. great work in, in Dundalk that Martin McGilligan is doing on bids is, is to be commended. But they are painting the facades. We need to actually mm. put more life into the town itself rather than just painting the facade. Put something so behind the, the facade. Yeah. <laughs> put, 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 put a working business in behind the facade uh, and open it up to the public. And I think anybody in either of the towns uh, would be able to uh, ream off uh, what you've said without much thought. What about the M1 corridor? Because you've been talking about this for a long time. It also makes part of your pre-budget submission. Yeah, the M1 corridor is, is, is critical for the region to develop. And we've already seen a number of companies coming into the area. I'm aware of one in Drawda. I can't say the name of it, but it made it an investment decision in Drawda simply based on the statistics that the M1 corridor contained. There's another company in Dundalk, Kassai, which was considering uh, another location, but at the end of the day opted for Dundalk. So in the last couple of months, I've seen two significant investments into the region which were primarily because of the statistical analysis that we have presented in the M1 corridor. So it is working. People sometimes say to me it's a theoretical piece. It's not. I can point to concrete places where we've won. And the idea behind it really is we're hearing about Dublin, Belfast and the C8 or the DB, D2B now is the next one, which is the Dublin, Belfast corridor working together. Mm. We don't have any problem with that as long as the corridor isn't at a, it doesn't start with a tunnel in uh, at Dublin Airport and come out somewhere on the Lisbon Road. And what we're arguing is that the middle bit needs enough critical mass that it doesn't get swamped and pulled in either direction, that we have enough critical mass to stand by ourselves. So that means County Lowes and Uri in, in the north, that we would have that mass. And I think we will succeed in that argument because it's, it's, it's a logical process and even the planners don't want mm. a Dublin or a Belfast broad. So we are the natural hinterland for the region. Okay, in making this uh, submission to the government, you're representing the local businesses, obviously, in the chamber uh, and their interests. And you're looking at, at energy uh, and, indeed, energy supply. And look, a, a lot of people, uh, you're saying, we need to do more on offshore wind. Uh, but what about doing business before we get to that point. How difficult are local businesses finding it now? I suppose we all saw the one with the restaurant and the €10,000 electricity bill last week. Uh, and we're hearing uh, that business may not be sustainable going into the winter because of energy bills and there may be reduced trading, uh, closing early, or businesses going to the wall as a result of huge bills. Yeah, look, I mean, when, when you're running a business, you have maybe... 30 or 40 different balls in the air that you've got to juggle. You've, you've got to watch your costs, and there could be several several of them that are significant. Energy in some businesses is critical, whether it's heating or whether it's cooking or lighting or whatever. And energy is one of those things that has a knock-on effect on absolutely everything else. So if energy goes up, it has a knock-on effect. It can be felt everywhere, right into far more inputs in terms of fertilizer and everything else. So it is, it is a critical feature of, of the, the carbon industry. We need to de- decouple and get away from it, but it is one of those things that we have to live with. So what we're saying is, if this is going to be a temporary situation, maybe longer than we expected, but still temporary, mm. then the government needs to support SMEs in terms of supporting uh, subsidies for the smaller businesses in some ways, but it should be targeted at only at certain businesses. And also, 
I think we need to be very conscious of the of the fact that there's a lot of people um, whom the Vincent de Paul know only too well, and others that need support. And the VDP, I, I was listening to them last night making the making the making the plea for um, discounted rates for certain people, and that the you know the, the technology with the smart meters is now there to do it. Mm-hmm. I think they're dead right. I think we do need to target uh, support now. You know, when I listen to people saying, well, I, I need 10% because I, I 10%. Over the next three months, two years, nearly every person is going to feed it and going to, the standard of living is going to drop. It's a matter of sharing that burden accurately and fairly. And that's what the SME sector is arguing for, um, that we would do it in a targeted way. Uh, because you, you can't, it's not one for everyone in the audience. No one can afford, you can't afford to do that. Okay, there's a, a lot in uh, your submission. Is this the first uh, pre-budget submission that you've done, Paddy? 20th. 20th? <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Uh, there's a, a lot in it, and we can only uh, touch on the surface of it, uh, obviously, uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, maybe you talk to me about parklets uh, before we hang up. It's only a minor thing. It was actually in last yeah. year's submission, and, and and I just rolled it over. Um, we saw the parklets develop um, over the... The, the um, when COVID came in and we saw the great use and I suppose it's one of the positive impacts of climate change is you can have a positive impact from climate change but people are eating out more the, the, the parklets are becoming more more common but what we're saying is when we when we scratch beneath the surface the, the legislation that supports it was all temporarily uh, brought in because of COVID and we do think it's been a success and we just simply want to put on a statutory basis with a certain amount of minimum standards and everything else. Um, and that's all we're looking for. It's, it's just a long-term commitment in that area from, from, the, from the government. I mean, if you talk to the local authorities, and I would be on one of the SBCs to talk about this, it's sort of like, well, the government, the government authorised us to do it temporarily, mm-hmm. and we don't know if it's permanent. And I just think it'd be a surprise for everybody if we saw the park has been removed for some technical reason. So let's just put it on a, on, a, on, a, on a formal legal basis. That's all we're saying. Okay, very good. Paddy, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme uh, to talk about your 20th pre-budget submission. Paddy Malone is uh, the PRO with uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, to another pre-budget uh, submush- submission uh, from uh, the charity uh, alone, which says uh, that because of uh, the increase in the cost of living, more people are seeking help from them. They also say that 92% of older people alone work with say that they're most concerned about heating and energy bills, followed by food prices, that's 67%, and household maintenance, uh, like a, a broken cooker or something like that, broken appliances, 32% uh, said that that was uh, their biggest concern. Uh, but some people may not be concerned about their appliances because they may not be using them because uh, this pre-budget submission has prompted the headline in the Irish Independent this morning that pensioners are turning off fridges and not using cookers as uh, the cost of a living crisis worsens. Uh, that's uh, the warning from... Alone, let's uh, speak to Sean Moynihan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alone. And a very good morning to you, Sean, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. That's a a dreadful situation uh, if uh, people aren't leaving their fridges on or not using their cookers. And that's before we get into the winter and the bills really start to soar. It is, I suppose. um, You know, um, the majority of people we'd work with would probably be older old and would obviously be on their own. So to stay pensioned, the chances are it's the only income coming in. 
So ultimately, is, is these are the types of people we need to put a floor under this winter because there is real hardship and real worry and people are already taking a very, uh, action. They've already made cuts into what they normally could do and people are, are on that edge that we need to be very careful uh, to make sure to support them. Mm. Well, we all have f- fridges for reasons uh, and I, I take it it's dangerous not to have your fridge turned on. Absolutely. Well, I suppose in doing a survey of the older people, a random survey of the people, these are the things that came back. These are the quotes that yeah. come back. People have coping mechanisms and strategies. People, pe- pe- people, people, you know, couldn't back on medical appointments because they can't afford the transfer costs. People couldn't back on an awful lot of socialising. Obviously, is the first thing. It's the first thing to go. But ultimately, then you have people maybe suffering with loneliness and isolation because of those things. So all these things are a downward spiral where people, you know, people need to realise that the pension is below the poverty line. Mm. So these are the people, when we hear these targeted messages messages on the radio and we hear all the politicians coming, this is what we need to see. We need to see that this cohort is supported and cared for, along with other mm. people who are on fixed incomes or on low incomes. But there is a section of our, our, our community, in our case, we figure it's around 100,000 older people who are in that cohort that need to be supported. And we realise that affects other age groups are in that cohort mm, too. OK, and it's just wrong on every level uh, to think that people are cutting back to that extent. Uh, to uh, turn that around, if you like, uh, you're saying that the €20 Euro increase in the budget is a necessity. Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, there's been a commitment to benchmark the the, 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 the the pension for many years. It's in the programme for government. And really, €20, Euros, everybody be standing still. Mm. That money's already spent. It's already gone. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So ultimately, it is, and we all know with every day we hear more news on these things. So even some of the asks are probably going out of date. Does that make sense? Mm. So ultimately, is, is that we really need that 20 euros on the pension. We've been let down the last couple of years and really they just need to benchmark pensions going forward to stop all this conversation every year and all this wasted energy because again, it is below the poverty line. We're not giving people huge luxuries and these are people who've contributed stamps and you know for yeah. 40 years to get this pension. Mm. Um, what would 15 euro do? If you're standing still at 20 euro, are you going to be forced to cut back if it is 15 euro? Because that, that was one of the options the government considered it's not even sure that they'll go ahead with the 15 euro well i think at the end of the day is, is to, to keep up with uh, government commitments they needed to do 12 euros in the last pension and they did five so as the, as the old adage goes if you're standing still you're going backwards and at the moment we're going backwards and i think people need to realize you know i think you know we were, we've been talking a lot there's an awful lot in the media about you know what i mean intergenerational you know you know not all older people are the same and the vast majority of older people you know have ultimately is, is have been working all their lives they're on a state pension and if they have a private pension it's very modest altogether because of the tax rates in the past and the mm. contribution people have made in the past and ultimately is, is we need to make sure that that 100,000 people aren't left without food security without energy security and then without 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 the health and the house, uh, without the health services and the housing needs they have. Mm. 
Uh, you'd wonder what happened. The world seemed to have uh, turned on its head ever since uh, the Ukrainian war. But, uh, I mean, we're looking at, in, into some very dark days and some real dire circumstances. If, <coughs> excuse me, if that's the reality of life for so many people. Uh, are people feeling very anxious themselves going into the winter? Uh, are, are people anxious about what will be announced in the budget? I think so. I mean, that's what we're picking up on the ground. We have people already who've made cutbacks because everything's gone up already, but also are, uh, have already started taking evasive action. I think on the on the more positive side, what I'd say to you is, is we're getting good exchequer returns. So ultimately, is is what mm. we need to do during COVID, and we realised this is a different issue. We had the ability to put a, a floor under the whole working community. Now we need to put a floor under under those who are huge risks uh, to, to, to this infla- to inflation mm. and food and energy. And ultimately, the thing is, is mm. we, we are a relatively rich country, you know, and, we, and I know none of us feel <laughs> that. Do you know what I mean? We're, probably, one of, we're one of the richest countries thinks, in the world. <laughs> yeah, everybody mm. must think, you know, that must be somebody next door because it's yeah. not me. Do you know exactly, what I mean? Exactly, yeah. Well, I think um, it is somebody next door. Yeah. Yeah. Prob- probably somebody who isn't paying tax for that matter. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I know that's how we how we all feel, but at the end of the day, is, is, you know, the, these hundred thousand older people, you know what I mean. Mm. And then you look at the rates, and it's 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 nearly two hundred thousand yeah. uh, younger people. So the reality is, is but these, in our case, are our parents, are our parents, our mm. aunties, our uncles, our grandparents. Okay. Nobody wants that for them. And I think we need to take some of the stats and remember that they're actually people and realise that they're the people on our streets or they're our relatives. Mm. What, what about that uh, 16 or 6 billion, uh, over 6 billion uh, in corporation tax uh, that the government wasn't uh, expecting, uh, talking of uh, stats? That's a, an awful lot of money, but they can't rely on, on that. And if uh, they were to spend it this year, it doesn't mean that they'd have that money available to them next year. But should they be using it this year in one-off measures? I think that's the thing we, we, we would hope. Obviously, the pension has to be, we think it just has to come up. But leaving that aside, they really need to, that's what I mean by the COVID, we put all this imaginative one-off measures underneath people to make sure that these things happen. So ultimately, is I think we need that level of creativity, that level of spending, get people through the winter and see where we are with inflation. We see the European Union is trying to take action, so maybe that will help in the, in the coming months to restabilise. But what People need support now, and they need they they need that to come. If it isn't, you know, consistent, you know that it's a long term support. At least let's do what we did in COVID. Let's mm. put a floor under those most in need. Okay, uh, I think at this stage you can expect, or or if I'm reading it right, it seems that you can expect a, a double payment in October. Uh, like the Christmas bonus, and that there probably will be credit put once again on people's energy bills. And I think everything to do that has to be has to be welcomed. We have to welcome anything that will help people people through this mm. and buy the time so that government comes up with planning on how this is going to be addressed in the medium to long term. Mm. But action is needed now, and then people can do the thinking out for the medium to the long term. Okay, if people are cutting back, you said earlier on, Sean, uh, that one of uh, the things they're doing is stopping socialising or cutting back on socialising and maybe not going for a a pint and and meeting somebody or going to the bingo or whatever it is uh, because they're trying to save the money. And you you said that that's 
compounding the problem of isolation and loneliness. Uh, and you want the government uh, to do something to help people uh, who are, are lonely in the country uh, uh, through uh, a specific policy uh, and well, an awful lot of money that you're asking for. People would know we we have a network of staff and we would have a network of thousands of volunteers combating loneliness. And we've campaigned for many years around policy in this area. There is no government policy in this area. There is no investment. There is no combating it. And I think COVID taught the whole community, young and old, the real effects of loneliness on your physical and your mental health. And the health evidence of what it does to people, the painfulness of loneliness, is irrefutable. What we then don't have is a plan to combat it. Okay. And ultimately, is at some stage we need to start investing in that. Unfortunately, more stuff, more stuff is online. So this this is affecting all age groups. You know, the fact is the loan task force that that we're very much part of the leadership of is across the whole all, all age groups, mm. and really a lot of people are struggling out there. And at some stage, the governments need to put their toe in the water and say, "Here's a policy. Here's where we're going to start, and let's start getting some action in the area." Okay, uh, text came to the program last week uh, from a, a listener who, who told us uh, they applied to the council in January to get work done in the house um, to help them live independently uh, at home Uh, and uh, they only heard last week uh, that they weren't going to get the work done there was no money left uh, in uh, the fund and you're calling for an increase uh, in the funding uh, that is given to county councils for adaptation grants Look, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a whole system and everything's linked together. You know, at the moment, the number of people on trolley counts is higher in August and September than it normally is in winter, right? And the whole focus is supporting people to age in the community. And some of those grants are across all age groups again and letting people age or be cared for or supported within the community. And that means that houses have to have the ability, whether that's access to bathrooms downstairs, whether that's uh, grab rails, simple grab rails or whatever. Mm. So ultimately, is if we don't invest in these small alterations for people, whether that's young people or old people, then people won't be able to be discharged from hospital. And people, which is the most expensive, costly thing, and really not you know, and not what people want, and that ultimately it won't happen. So, mm. again, it has to be looked as a system, not just that that's the Department of Housing and the HSE is a separate thing. Mm, and there's nothing unusual about that call, is there? I mean, it happens no. every year. People apply in January, comes to August, and you're told all the money is gone and there's nothing left to do the work for you. Absolutely, and people have got to realise that <clears throat> these grants, and it, I mean, it must be a dreadfully tough job if it's an underfunded scheme, not done by demand, must be terrible to, tough job in the local authority deciding who gets it and who mm. doesn't. But these grants are about people's dignity. They are about bathrooms. They are about grab rails. They are about conversions that may allow people to live at home, to live with some dignity and also to have health needs or support needs, mm. young and old, be addressed in the household. And is there a question of address, geography, look of the draw, where you might get a grant if you're in County Loud and be denied when it County Meads because there's less demand in one county than there is in another? Uh, that is quite possible. I think there's been, we, we did a lot of work with other agencies and produced a pr- thing prior to COVID, probably around 218, around the standardisation. There are 31 local authorities and the and the the goal here has been trying to keep the pressure on and encourage and support the local authorities to produce a standardised system on it because in the past everybody wanted different amounts of information, different processes 
And this is where it gets really difficult for young mm. people and all, all older people, uh, especially with older people, is, is that there are so many multiple systems to get anything done. Does that okay. make sense? Whether it's mm-hmm. yeah. uh, whether it's grants from the local authority or HSE, home care, or wherever you have to mm-hmm. go to a million doors, and then and now as we move, it's moving more onto div- lots of different websites and everything else. Mm. So yeah. in some ways, we need to unify all this and make it an awful lot simpler. B- bureaucracy on top of uh, bureaucracy. Can I uh, ask you just uh, about one other issue that you raise in your submission before we finish up, Sean? Uh, because uh, you're asking government to develop a long-term plan for housing older people. Uh, it, is that possible if older people are going to be renting all of their lives? What are they going to do when they have no income? I think the, the, this, this is the challenge. Housing, we know the top. You can't turn the top on on housing really quickly. I think we've all been told that ad nauseum probably for a decade. And the reality is, is the number of people renting in their 50s is four times the number in their 60s. So we need a plan for all of the, for that age group coming through. And then underneath, there's more and more renting. On top of that is, is every survey, housing needs survey done by all by, by local authorities showed a huge amount of older people living in poor housing conditions. We all know what a probate sale looks like because people obviously don't have the money to, or the energy to, in some cases, some you know money or energy to maintain their own homes. And then if you don't live at home, you go to a nursing home. So we need alternatives to that. So really what we need is housing for all to address an ageing population, same as it, it needs to address the younger population. Okay, Sean, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much. Uh, That's uh, the pre-budget submission from Alone, and Sean Moynihan is the CEO of Alone. Michael Reed on LMFM. Will we have uh, the money to keep uh, the lights on going into the winter? That's almost become a turn of phrase you hear it said so often. Uh, Maybe we won't need the lights on as often or as long as we usually do when we go into the winter, if we don't change the clocks. This is an idea that is being put forward by Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard. Uh, and indeed, it's one that the Daily Mail reports today is being highlighted by Queen's University Professor in Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Aoife Foley. Uh, and Professor Foley says... It's an engineering idea to save energy. By simply foregoing the winter daylight saving time in October, we save energy because it's brighter in the evening during winter, so we reduce commercial and residential electrical demand as people leave work earlier and go home earlier, meaning less lighting and heating is needed. It's simple, I suppose, but what does it mean? €500, apparently, uh, according to that article in the Daily Mail today. If uh, we don't change the clocks... We save €500. Euro. Uh, we'll need that much less energy. We won't be turning the lights on uh, because it'll be brighter and uh, we'll be going to bed before it's colder, <laughs> if you know what I mean, uh, resulting in those savings. Now, let me uh, bring you some of the comments today. I think we're all just disgusted and sick to the stomach hearing the details about what happened in Tala and the murder of those three children. Marion was in touch with us and Marion says her heart goes out to the mother, brother and remaining family members of those three angels who died at the hands of that monster on Saturday night. What they must be going through is incomprehensible. Marion says she hopes they can draw support from their local community and can feel the support, love and prayers 
of the whole country as they grieve. I don't think there'll be any shortage of support, but it won't undo the situation, Marion, but uh, I think we all echo your feelings on that. Pat in Atboy says, now is uh, the time for Minister McEntee to rush through the legislation that she's been promising for some time that would see longer sentences for more serious crimes. This tragic case is a prime example of where the time should match the crime. The man who perpetrated these murders should never see the light of day again after what he's done. It's unthinkable that we could see a scenario whereby the killer might get out in eight or ten years. He took three young lives and his punishment must reflect that. Thanks, Pat. Uh, We did have uh, that fairly dramatic uh, suggestion earlier on that to reflect the gravity of the crime, that his life would be taken, that there would be capital punishment uh, and uh, a death sentence. Uh, David Finnegan got in touch with us uh, about that and he says, Good morning, Michael. Capital punishment would be too quick for those people. But certainly they should be put in prison. And without plasma TV screens uh, and all the good stuff that you uh, see and hear about uh, people in uh, prisons and the comfort of it all, lock them up 23 hours a day and no visitors, no plasma TV screens and none of that stuff. Uh, Prison for life. Uh, But don't kill them. Not a death sentence, David says. Uh, capital punishment would just be too quick. Uh, They'd be put out of uh, their pain too quickly. Thanks uh, for that, David. Um, uh, Another call uh, that comes to us uh, about uh, that uh, from John, who says um, that we really need to look on ourselves as a society uh, if this is the kind of thing that's happening uh, in our neighbourhoods. A text comes uh, to us uh, from uh, a listener uh, about uh, the renovations uh, that can be done, the home adaptation grants. And she says, most people in my town get renovations done. Uh, They're on the dole, though, and they're people who never contributed to the tax system. As for pensioners, they're well off, always out dining in my local hotel. What about the middle earners uh, who are keeping all of these people in these lifestyles? I'm one of the middle low earners. Thank you indeed. Uh, I think uh, there was little surprise in the last sentence of your text. Um, But uh, yeah, um, that's somebody uh, who thinks uh, that something should be done to help them. I think that's probably uh, the view of a, a lot of people. Everybody going into this budget saying, I'm feeling the pinch. Margaret says, what planet is Eamon Ryan living on? Cloud cuckoo land. I think uh, as he, he wants a million electrical vehicles on the road by 2030, yet he can't guarantee that there won't be power cuts this winter. So where do we get the energy to power these cars if they can't keep the lights on in our homes? Now, uh, it's a typical Irish cart before the horse solution as usual, Margaret says. And maybe we're heading back to the horse and cart. (laughs) Thanks, uh, Margaret, uh, for your cynicism. As always, it's always very much appreciated. A call to the show then from Mairead, who is in Drogheda. Mairead says, families are worried sick about how they're going to pay for the heating uh, and just the electricity generally this winter. The prices have gone through the roof already. We need to know what is happening and we need to know that now and what help is going to be given to people. 
Uh, but we're going to find out on the 27th of September, I suppose, Mairead, uh, if you can hang on that long. That's uh, just a, a little over three weeks. Uh, tomorrow, three weeks, uh, is Budget Day. Uh, she says it, it's not just those on welfare who will be needing support. Every household, bar perhaps those who are making massive money, will need financial help. Uh, and as I say, uh, that probably is uh, the problem. We heard from the consultants, uh, some of uh, the highest earners in the country on the programme last week, saying they need more money. Uh, and uh, it's uh, across the board. Everybody uh, is thinking that uh, they've seen a reduction in their spending power. And that's what inflation does, of course. Uh, Jerry wants to know who's in charge of pricing when it comes to fuel prices. He says last week there was a drop in the wholesale price of diesel, a drop by 12 cent, yet in Drogheda the price of diesel increased by 4 or 5 cent at the pumps. Prices in Drogheda always seem to be higher than anywhere else and it's making it impossible for people to keep their cars on the road, he says. Yeah, well, we were told to uh, watch out for the prices going up again. I think you'll see... uh, over two euro a, a litre in some stations at the moment. Uh, the reason for that, well, I think there's probably uh, an awful lot of explanations uh, for it, but thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme. Thanks to everybody who was in touch with us today. That's our programme for this morning. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.